The question of influence is one that is frequently probed and asked outside of the church. There are many that talk about influence, perhaps in business or the military. How do we have influence? Of what nature should it be? Influence is seen as a commendable thing, but often within the church, we shy away from the notion. Christians frequently think that a faithful life is a quiet life that really has no impact on those around them. We often don't understand the proper place of influence in the Christian life. But Jesus taught that his disciples ought to have influence. Influence on the world around them. He taught it in these few verses in the Sermon on the Mount. And he taught that the influence should be at least twofold. One of preserving, that is hindering sin, upholding a certain moral standard in the world and an influence of illuminating, that is, shining the worthiness of righteous behavior before others, and according to God's grace, even leading people to salvation. This morning we think about this influence that Jesus anticipates we will have as his disciples under those two Headings according to Jesus' two metaphors, a preserving and an illuminating influence with the prayer that we would be not merely hearers of his word, but doers also. May God grant that this church has great influence in the world. Beginning with the first word picture that Jesus uses, that of salt, where he teaches us that we should have a preserving influence, Jesus says, you, speaking to his disciples, are the salt of the earth. Now this is perhaps one of the most well-known portions of the Sermon on the Mount, so much so that that phrase has found its way into common, everyday language, You'll often hear people speaking about those being the salt of the earth with no intended reference to Jesus' intention, but simply meaning that the person to whom they're referring is good, upright, can be trusted, is a genuine kind of person, the kind of person you'd like to have as a friend. We need to understand more accurately what did Jesus mean when he employed this metaphor, speaking specifically to his disciples, saying, you are the salt of the earth. It's tricky because of just how versatile salt was in the ancient world. Today, we use salt almost exclusively to enhance the flavor of food, and if you live in a country or a part of the world that has real winters, then the salt is used on the roads 
when the ice comes to destroy the underneath of your car. <laughs> In the ancient world, salt was used much more extensively. Commentators have suggested there are at least 11 uses that we can identify for salt in Jesus' day. And in fact, whole volumes have been written on the use of salt in the first century. I read those books so that you don't have to. You're welcome. I didn't actually read a book this week about the uses of salt in the ancient world, but I did read many, many comments about it. And its use is extensive, which means this metaphor can be difficult to understand. To which use was Jesus appealing? Most likely, and if there is a consensus, it is that Jesus had in mind its most common use, which was as a preservative. So the ancients didn't have access to the technology that we do, especially that of refrigeration, and thus they had to find a way to preserve their food and especially their meat. And they would do that by rubbing salt into the food to give it just a few extra days before it turned bad. Most likely, Jesus has that in mind, first and foremost, because it is the most common use. It would be the use that most readily came to the minds of the disciples as they heard Jesus say this. And then we might already look at the parallel with the second metaphor in verse 14. You are the salt of the earth, parallel exactly with verse 14, you are the light of the world. Earth and world should be understood as synonyms there. And the second metaphor is easier to understand. There we would see that Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are to have a positive influence, a shining in the world. And so, perhaps in verse 13, Jesus is speaking about the other side of the same coin. If they're to be positively light, they are also to have a, what I've called, restraining effect on the world around them. To paraphrase, Jesus is saying, you are to be a preserving influence in the world. Your conduct is to have an influence such that others refrain from sinful activity because of you, because of your righteous behavior. In God's providence, he allows others to be restrained from their sin. Now, Jesus doesn't explain how his disciples were to go about having that kind of preserving influence. But the placement of the text is instructive. So it's not insignificant that these words come immediately after the Beatitudes. These are the very next words that Jesus speaks. And in a sense, they even form a final comment on the Beatitudes. We have been studying those Beatitudes for some time. And so you'll remember this is a manual for discipleship, not the criteria that you must attain to to be counted as a disciple, but simply the behavior that Jesus' disciples will exhibit. And they're to do that in the world. Jesus' disciples are to be poor in spirit in the world. 
They're to mourn in the world. They're to be meek amongst others. They are to hunger and thirst for righteousness in the public sphere. His disciples should be merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers amongst others. You are the salt of the earth. So notice, perhaps the first point of application we can make is that nowhere here does Jesus advocate for the monastic life. In fact, nowhere in the Bible is the notion of God's people retreating supported. It is to be that we are very much in the public sphere living out our faith and our Christian lives for the world to see. The monastic life where the Christian retreats to a safe space to be amongst others but never amongst unbelievers is forbidden. Jesus did not picture that his disciples would live their lives in that manner. And think about how when you're obedient to live your life amongst unbelievers, to be in the world, think about how that then creates a powerful testimony that could be used as a preserving influence. Again, leaning on the Beatitudes, you are displaying these characteristics unashamedly, not in secret, do not forget how every single beatitude began. Blessed, joyful, happy, flourishing are the peacemakers, taught Jesus. And so when you tread out the path of a true disciple, you flourish because you are living life the way that God intended for you to live. That's where the flourishing comes. You live life the way that God intends for you to live in a fallen, sin-cursed world, and you, the disciple, begins to flourish. And the world sees that flourishing. They see your manner of life, and they see it coupled with joy, happiness. It is a powerful testimony that the disciple has simply by being a disciple in the world. And Jesus seems to be indicating here that when you live faithfully in that manner, in the world, as a disciple, flourishing all the way, it can be very instructive to an unbeliever. It can create in their life a preserving influence, a hindering, restraining force on their life that keeps them back from sin. You start to function as an example to them. And this principle is not entirely new. This is not the first time the Bible shows us this. As we think about the role of the law in the Old Testament, theologians throughout the history of the church have suggested that at least one purpose for the law is as a restraint on sinful activity. 
It's not that all of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament were truly regenerate. And yet the law had a beneficial effect in the lives of those that weren't because it served to restrain their sinful tendencies. Now we become the embodiment of that. We embody the law, we practice the commands that Jesus gives to his disciples, and so we become that example of righteousness. And in so doing, according to the Lord's providence, he may use your life to restrain others from sin. You maybe, as you think about this, can already point to examples of it in your own life. Before I went into ministry, I think back to serving on the submarine and just how dark spiritually an environment that was. There was something that happened in the minds of the men as we dive the boat, go underwater. No one can see us anymore. And being away from home for three months... It was a very, very spiritually depraved environment. People knew that I was a Christian. I was the only believer on board. And one thing I noticed when I sat on watch with the guys, they wouldn't use coarse language. They wouldn't tell the stories that they normally tell. I never made a request of them. They knew who I was and they observed that I didn't use that language and I didn't tell those stories and there was a, a benefit enjoyed by everyone when we were on watch together. Now as I say that, as you think about examples in your own life of God working in this way, perhaps questions come up, not least, to what end? In one sense, you might say it really doesn't matter that we have this restraining influence if those around us behave morally and yet are still destined for eternal destruction. They're not saved. They're just behaving in a more upright manner because of our influence in their life. And certainly, you're right, moralism is not our goal. The end goal of the church is not simply a moral lifestyle. Though with that being said, there are benefits to this restraining influence. There are benefits in the here and now as the church and as Christians are able to influence others in a more morally upright direction. However, this is where maybe there is a second layer to the metaphor. Again, there are many uses of salt, and I think perhaps the fact that Jesus doesn't explain exactly what he intends for us to understand allows for this second layer to the metaphor. It's not incidental that Jesus uses the article when he says, you are the salt of the earth. He does not permit for this kind of preserving influence to be claimed by anyone 
who is not a disciple of Christ. Last week, we thought about a kind of righteousness that doesn't honor God. A kind of righteousness that is practiced by the Pharisees. Jesus does not allow for the Pharisees to claim this kind of preserving influence. No matter what level of righteousness they practice, they would not be able to say, we are the salt of the earth. Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, you are some of the salt. The upright, well, law-abiding Muslim cannot say, I too am the salt of the earth. The well-behaved atheist can't say, I, with the Christians, am the salt of the earth, having a preserving influence which suggests there is more to it than simply keeping others back from sin. It might be that Jesus has in mind another use of salt in the ancient world, that of keeping a covenant, of forming an agreement. Salt doesn't go away. You can't get rid of it. It just is. And because of its permanence, it was used in the ancient world in a symbolic manner when two entered into an agreement. Salt would be used in that agreement in some way to represent the permanence of the relationship that was just formed. And that covenant-keeping aspect may be in mind, which hints at the possibility of this preserving influence going beyond simply upright living in the lives of sinners. It could be that God uses your influence to bring sinners to salvation. Now, I want to be very careful here. Please understand your behavior does not save. Your upright behavior before the lost is insufficient to save anyone. Salvation comes by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for sin and rose again. Faith in that message is what saves. But it might be that your behavior presents an opportunity for you to communicate that message. This is my testimony. I was saved at 21. Before that, living very much in sin without any regard for the Lord. And away from home, when I was studying at university, I lived with six other guys, two of whom were Christians. And for a year, all I did was observe. I didn't ask any questions. I just noted how different their lifestyle was. Their righteousness woke me up to the futility of my sin. It made me realize for the first time how unsatisfying sin was. And so over time, eventually I asked these believers... Why do you do what you do? And they were thrilled that I would ask. 
and they read the gospel with me, and the Lord saved me. This could be how God uses you. I said before, if you make it known that you're a believer, and you ought, if you make it known that you're a believer, you can guarantee someone is watching you. They may not have the courage to ask you, but they're watching your behavior. And there is something profound. It's called the Holy Spirit. When that behavior then works so as to prompt them to ask why you behave the way you do. Now, it's not a given. It is not guaranteed that the disciples of Jesus would be the salt of the earth. Jesus gives a warning. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Again, it can be difficult to understand what Jesus was meaning here, especially as we've already noted the fact that salt doesn't go away. You can't get rid of it. And at least the salt we buy today does not ever lose its saltiness. But we're helped by noting that in Jesus' time, the salt with which they would have preserved food would not have been as pure a substance as we have today. It would have been a mixture of many other compounds. And in that sense, their salt could have very much lost its saltiness. The salt part of this substance could go to leave dross. Everything that was not salt could be left behind, and now it cannot be used to preserve meat. Rather, it would be thrown out, oftentimes on the rooftops. The roofs in Jerusalem would be used often as a meeting place, or children would play up there. And under the heat of the sun, the mixture thrown onto the roof as it was trampled in and baked would harden the roof. So it's no longer any good to preserve. It just gets thrown out into the streets. Jesus is saying it's entirely possible that you as a disciple are not having an influence. And in fact, there's again another layer to what he's saying. That word saltiness there is potentially employed by Jesus for the sake of a wordplay. Every other time that that word is found, it is not within the context of speaking about salt, but actually another meaning for that word is simply foolishness. It is the notion of a failure. Not of the intellect, but in Jesus' day, to be a fool is a, a fool through and through, morally. You have become foolish. If salt has lost its taste, you are rendered foolish, says Jesus. Which is to say, you are not being a disciple. The way in which you are foolish is to have received the effectual call of Christ 
for God to have opened your eyes by His grace to see His Son's worthiness, to have received the benefits of salvation, but then to fail to tread out a path of obedience, to not be meek, to not mourn your sin, to not be merciful or pure in heart, to not be a peacemaker, Jesus pronounces you a fool. And that is to say in this context, you have no influence in the world around you. There are many Christians who have no influence in the world around them. It may be that you are one of them this morning, not treading out a path of obedience, and therefore having no restraining effect in the lives around you. And rest assured, God is not pleased to use you to bring someone else to salvation. So how do we avoid the warning? How do we avoid being rendered foolish? And the answer, foundationally, is to come back and take in Christ yet again. Remember the logic of the Beatitudes is one that is kingdom-oriented and Christ-centered. And as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, we will come back to the Beatitudes over and over again. They do function as that table of contents, The themes introduced in the first few verses of chapter 5 will come up over and over again, but so also the logic or the theology that underpins them, we will see over and over as Jesus preaches this message. So you'll remember every beatitude rightly understood as we wrestle with the beatitude should drive us back to Jesus himself. And so as we seek to be Salt, foundationally, the answer of how we cannot be rendered foolish is simply to be enamored with Christ. You keep going on in the Christian life in the same manner by which you were first saved. And that is to look at Christ and refresh your love for Him. I want to encourage you to pray daily, that God would renew your love for Christ, that you would acknowledge just how fickle is your heart, you would not take for granted your love for the Savior, but you would pray daily that God would give you a fresh love for your Savior. You take Him in afresh, in his word. And then you strive toward holiness. By God's grace, take in Christ and strive for holiness. That is what it is to be the salt of the earth. Before you have any restraining influence, first and foremost, you are found to be one who loves Christ and honors him strives to honor Him through obedience to His Word. It is a refusal to live a reactive Christian life. So many Christians, I find, are living reactively, meaning they are content to go along 
in the currents and the streams of this world, and it is only when they fail that they see that action is needed. Only when they fail and fall into sin that they decide, now I need to respond and take action. That is not what it looks like to strive for holiness. Rather, proactively, long before any sin has reared its ugly head in your heart, or in your circumstances, proactively, you are pursuing the righteousness to which God's Word commends us, considering how it is you truly can be distinct in a sinful world. This is where the church is so crucially important to you. You can't go it alone. You have no hope of living that holy life If you're a lone ranger Christian, you need to be here when God's people are here. You need to be coming together for worship on the Lord's Day and you need to be with Christians during the week in transparent relationships that genuinely are functioning so as to hold you accountable. You need believers in your life that are willing to challenge you and confront you and encourage you. And as you do so, then you will be equipped to be in the world. There's a fine balance to be struck. Time in the church. And yet living in the world. But that is what it is to be the salt of the earth. To not lose our saltiness. And so, may we not be foolish. As a church, may we not be foolish. Take in Christ and strive for holiness. Jesus gives us a second word picture. A second metaphor he employs, you are the light of the world. Now as we move into this second point... We note, as we already have done this morning, the exact parallelism with the first word picture. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. It seems that Jesus is giving at least a similar principle, if not a complementary principle. And the word picture, I would say, is easier to understand. We understand what light does, it illumines. And Jesus is teaching here, the other side of the coin, we are to be a preserving influence, according to God's grace, restraining sinners from sin, and an illumining influence that shows people what righteousness is, and maybe even prompts them to walk in that direction. And Jesus says in verse 16, to the end that they would give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is potentially a double application here. Perhaps you notice Jesus uses the metaphor of light twice. Once with reference to a city on a hill, and once with reference to a light, a lamp, on a stand. That twofold reference to light, I think, can be played out in two ways, individually 
and corporately. The city is where many people are. The lamp represents one single light. I don't think it's incorrect to say Jesus intends for this illuminating influence to be worked out individually in your life according to the circumstances in which God has placed you, you should be found as a faithful witness having this illuminating influence and corporately the church should be this light also. Individually and corporately, we as a church should strive to be, in this case, very literally, a city on a hill. Pray with me that your life would indeed be a light to others and that God would work in the life of this church so that we would shine the light of the gospel to the surrounding community. That would be the twofold application. Again, notice Jesus doesn't explain the how. How do you be an illuminating influence? There is much that we could say. As an initial observation, I would say it involves, at the very least, a refusal to be ashamed of the gospel. With Paul. We should say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of salvation for all who believe. To the Jew and to the Greek. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul understood the power of the gospel. And as we refuse to be ashamed, as we with him say, I'm unashamed of the message by which I stand right before God this morning, then we will live out our lives in an unashamed manner. We will have our faith on display, not seeking in any sense to hide any aspect of our righteousness. Now we don't do it for the praise of men, Jesus will go on in the sermon to talk about how we should be careful with our righteous conduct. We're not seeking the praise of men. We're doing it to honor our Father because He has commanded us. But again, we understand it is proper that we live our faith in the public square. We are not hiding the fact that we're Christians. And if you find that the Word of God leads your feet in a certain direction of obedience, you walk in that path regardless of the consequences. Again, noting the the positioning of this text within the sermon, the last thing Jesus' disciples heard from him was that they would be persecuted. That was the very last beatitude, and that is ringing in their ears and knowing that there would be undoubtedly some fear in them, he says, you have got to live your life in such a way that your faith in me is by no means hidden. You've got to live your Christian life so that your obedience is very much on display. Paul picks up on this in the epistles when he writes to the Colossians and says, walk with wisdom towards the world, that your speech be seasoned with salt. 
He expects that we would be ready to give an answer to the world. That we'd be ready to explain who we are and why we do what we do. Now, as I say that, perhaps you, knowing your circumstances, are also perhaps somewhat fearful. It can be an intimidating thought to be a bold, unashamed Christian, knowing the consequences that it might bring. How do we join with Paul and ensure that we might say, I'm unashamed of the gospel? It is, of course, to take in the light, the light of the world, Christ. Jesus himself in John's gospel taught, I am the light of the world. In Matthew's gospel, he says, you are the light. He's not contradicting himself. Already at this early stage, he's thinking of passing on the baton that his disciples would represent him well. In order to do so, we must have a steadfast gaze upon the light who is Christ. You see, the Christian life becomes remarkably easy when you're fixated upon the Savior. Peter, in chapter 14 of Matthew's Gospel, will walk on water. Do you believe that? This is not just some Sunday school story we tell that doesn't have some truth behind it. Not that any of our stories we tell in Sunday school are like that. It is there for your edification. Peter walked on water. How? Because he was looking at Jesus. And then you remember... The text tells us when he saw the wind and the storm, he began to drown. He took his eyes off Christ and faith became a very difficult thing. When you look to Jesus, the Christian life becomes remarkably simple. Including having a powerful, unashamed witness in the world. And it may be that it leads unbelievers to some degree in the path of righteousness, which may include their praising of our Father in heaven. Jesus says, again, it's not a given. We need to take in Christ, strive for holiness. We're not to put our light under a basket. Let your light shine, there's the command. And it may be that others see your righteousness and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, I do think we can understand this statement from Jesus in a way that doesn't necessarily imply salvation. It could be that God uses your testimony of righteous behavior in a way that others acknowledge our Father in heaven. Now, this would have been common in Jesus' day by virtue of a group of people that the Scriptures labels as God-fearers. In the book of Acts, you see, just by way of example, the Pharisees, the Jews, the Gentiles, the church, 
And there is a group that keeps receiving reference called the God-fearers. The idea is that they would be very religious. They would acknowledge the reality of God and they would fear Him. But for whatever reason, they hadn't embraced the gospel of salvation and sometimes it is simply that they haven't yet heard it. I think God-fearers, in the sense that we see them in Acts, are far less common today. I think today we find those who deny the existence of God or those who love Him through Christ. It's an indication of just how secular our time is, but in one sense it has made the work of evangelism easier. It may be that God uses your righteous conduct to prompt people to praise Him in a way that doesn't necessarily include their salvation. With that being said, we may note again a possible second meaning to the word picture. We read this morning from Isaiah 60, and if you've been with us through this series in Matthew, you'll know Matthew frequently appeals to the theology of the Old Testament and often, specifically, the prophet Isaiah to make his point. Quite possibly, the theology of Isaiah sits right behind this metaphor of Christ. You're the light of the world because when you turn to Isaiah all the way through, not just in chapter 60, the prophet employs light as a picture for salvation. Light and darkness all the way through Isaiah it would not have been lost on Jesus' original hearers when he said, you are the light. Think about our text this morning, Isaiah 60, arise and shine. Why? Because a great light has shone upon you. You see that relationship, the people of God instructed to stand up and to shine. Only because, first and foremost, a light has shone upon them. And so quite possibly the same relationship is inferred here. It may be that God uses your righteous conduct in a lost world as part of someone's salvation testimony. Again, not apart from a clear communication of the gospel. Your righteous behavior cannot save anyone, but it may very well prompt someone's curiosity. Your righteous behavior is to be a light in which unbelievers can bask. Your righteous behavior is to be a light in which they can enjoy the benefits of the gospel. And God may even use their enjoyment of the light to prompt a curiosity in the message. And there, use the message to save them so that their glorifying of your Father who is in heaven is now salvific, is now a glorying as a disciple. That's how God may use you to have influence. You may have an eternal influence in the world, beginning with your upright behavior. 
in the Lord's providence as I see my testimony in the first metaphor of salt and that preserving influence. I see very much my brother's testimony in the second. Many of you met him. He was out just a few months ago. He was saved just a few years after me. And in God's wisdom, we're both now pastoring. His testimony is one of seeing righteousness and enjoying the light that that brings. I would go away for months and he would always be faithful to check in for me with Laura just to see how she was and if she needed anything and I was very grateful. He was an unbeliever at the time and I remember one time when I was away he actually took a visit over to Northern Ireland. He went to visit with Laura's family. He'd never been to the country before and he had a wonderful weekend. He didn't realize that every single person he met while he was there was a believer. And he came away and we were able to connect later and he said to me, everyone in Northern Ireland is so friendly. I said, Ben, everyone whom you met was a believer. He was just enjoying the light of the gospel. And sure enough, that piqued his curiosity and he asked questions and he's a pastor today. God can use you to have great influence in the world beginning with your righteous behavior. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, if you're here, you've never put your faith in Him as a Savior, I trust that you notice things are different here. Things are different here up on this hill to how they are outside of the church. It may even be that you've been coming for some time and though you may not articulate it in this way, you enjoy the light of the gospel on this campus. We're not perfect. We try by God's grace to honor him through obedience and perhaps you see something of that. And my invitation is that you would join us in glorifying God this morning, that you would do so as a disciple. Not merely a God-fearer, but a disciple. Put your faith in Christ and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me now as we close? Father, we give you thanks for this teaching of Christ, the responsibility that he makes plain to us. We are to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We're to be that preserving influence, that illuminating influence. According to your providence, your kindness, we truly can have a restraining effect. 
on other people's sinful behavior. We truly can, according to your grace, lead others in a way of righteous living. And there's an immediate benefit to that enjoyed by all of society. It's not meaningless. It does have a benefit as you use us in that way. And so we pray that we would be faithful. Above all, faithful to take in Christ, to be enamored with him afresh, to love him, to see him as the light of the world, renew our love for Christ daily. Help us to be faithful to live our lives in the public square. Father, please do not allow us to retreat and to live an insular life in light of the mercy we've received. Give us the wisdom we need to engage in a lost world and to be present. And then we think about the eternal influence that we could have. Again, it's all according to your grace. We are in awe to think this morning that you may use us as part of one's testimony of salvation, as they observe how we abstain from sin and how we pursue righteousness, that may prompt them to consider things of eternity. We pray that we would be faithful to communicate the hope that we have, help us to speak the truth about the gospel, about your Son, and we pray again that through all of this you would save sinners. We ask this morning that there would be a consistent work of salvation that happens here and in the life of this church through all that are gathered. We praise you and we ask for your goodness in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.